0: The opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of the owner, staff, or management of this radio station.
1: Just give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice, and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers-Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter. On Harvesting Happiness on TogiNet.com, and now here's your host, Lisa Cypress Cayman.
2: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human, human flourishing. We are not talking about the annoying yellow smiley face. No, 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 no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is all about the heart. Before we bring on our guest today, I invite you to join the conversation live by calling us at 877-864-4869. Again, that's 877 864 Four eight six nine. You can log into our chat room at toginet.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen and at HH Talk Radio or tweet at us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Alrighty, let's get to it. Today we are focusing on the history of happiness. We spend so much time talking about happiness as a concept and an emotion, but there really is a very rich history behind these emotions, and a, quite a scholarly one. Today we have with us Darren M. McMahon, who is the Ben Weeder Professor of History at Florida State University. He's educated at the University of California at Berkeley and Yale, where he received his Ph.D. McMahon is the author of Enemies of Enlightenment, Happiness, a History, which has been translated into 12 languages and was awarded Best Books of the Year honors for 2006, by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Library Journal, and Slate Magazine. And his latest book, which will be coming out this fall in October, is entitled Divine Fury, A History of Genius, A History of the Idea of Genius and the Genius Figure. Good morning, Darren. Thanks for joining us.
3: Good morning, Lisa. It's great to be here.
2: Oh, well, I am excited to talk about this, the history of happiness, because we don't all often think of happiness, which many of us, when we say the word, it, we have that yellow smiley face that comes to mind, um, really has a very rich philosophical and um, historic precedent.
3: That's absolutely right. A long, long history, and uh, I look forward to talking about it.
2: Well, let's, let's just jump right in. The roots of human happiness, where would we find them?
3: Well, you know, one of the places I always like to start is just with the word itself. I'm, I'm interested in words, and the word happiness is interesting not only in English, but in fact in every Indo-European language. Uh, the word happiness is cognate with luck, um, and it, like I said, it's across the board this is true. In German today, the word for happiness, gluck, means happy and uh, and lucky. Um, in English, the uh, root is an old Norse and old English term, hap, H-A-P, that gives us words like happenstance or perhaps. Um, and I think that's really interesting, because uh, what lies behind that is the notion um, that that for most people at most times in human history, happiness wasn't thought of something that you could control. Happiness was in the hands of the gods. Happiness was um, dictated by fortune or by fate. Happiness was what happened to you. And most mm-hmm. human beings couldn't imagine controlling their own lives. And so happiness came from afar, as it were. And that's, that's a very different notion from... Uh, the way we think about happiness today, and that that the notion uh, is a relatively recent one, the idea that we can control our own destiny and fate.
2: Well, so in essence, what I hear you saying is that it was a byproduct of something else, that the happiness came from came from a, another trajectory
3: exactly um, and a byproduct of something else uh, and something that wasn't the ordinary default condition of human beings. Uh, for most people, most times in human history, uh, happiness was, if it happened at all, a great exception, right? Uh, Aristotle, the, the great Greek philosopher, who's one of the first to really think seriously about happiness in a sustained way, uh, writes of the happy few. And what he means by that is that you know, happiness is a, a supreme attainment. It's something that one works on uh, throughout the whole of a, of a lifetime. And if we achieve it, uh, we're, we're fortunate, but that can't be guaranteed and we can't count on it. And it's not just sort of philosophers like Aristotle, but in fact, every religious tradition, I would argue, uh, is a a philosophy or theology of happiness. And in every religious tradition too, you have this idea of of happiness or human flourishing as a great achievement, right? Uh, Something that one uh, works on throughout the the course of one's life, something that one may even need divine assistance or favor to achieve. Um, And so to think of happiness as we have tended to do since roughly the 18th century, as uh, a kind of natural or default uh, human condition and something that we can make for ourselves. It's really a radical departure uh, in thinking about happiness historically.
2: Well, when we look to ancient philosophy, what these ancient philosophers were talking about is the the, the toil. I mean, each of us uh, merely to survive was the operative goal, that thriving or excelling or finding joy was is what I hear you saying was was more rare?
3: Absolutely, more rare, and for most people, an incredible luxury. And that's one of the things I like to point out too. You know, we spend a lot of time in the modern world, sort of worrying about our happiness, um, and. You know, the reasons why we worry about it, we can talk about that in a moment, but um, I think it's important to appreciate what a luxury that is, right? Uh, again, for, for most people in human history, um, to think about, you know, uh, human flourishing wasn't really the first and foremost on their uh, list of priorities. Staying alive was the first priority, right? Um, right. Hoping that uh, marauding armies didn't come, you know, tramping through your village and, and, and carry off your family, uh, fighting famine and, 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 and disease and and, and so forth. And so those people who had the, the sort of luxury to, to, to devote themselves to cultivating their lives were, were always a privileged few. Uh, and in fact, Aristotle again builds this right into his way of thinking. He says, look, you know, in order to, to go about um, building a happy life, uh, one has to have certain things in place, a kind of modicum of, uh, of material comfort, uh... and um you know a decent family uh... structure and, and 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 political stasis and so forth and we could disagree with the particulars but his main point is that you know pursuing uh, a life of human flourishing is, is in some respects uh... a luxury
2: and let's also talk about the lifespan if you if you look in ancient times the lifespan was probably what thirty forty
3: exactly right uh... much much shorter and so uh, that's something that's always worth keeping in mind when we, you know, we debate the question, are people happier in the 21st century than they were, uh, in earlier centuries? Well, it may be impossible to answer that question, but one thing we can say for sure is that we live an awful lot longer, and so we have more years in which to, to pursue happiness, whether we get there in the end or not.
2: And in terms of basic needs, you know, we talk about the, the, the will to survive or the survival instincts that, uh, keep us from being concerned about happiness, and I think there is something very valid about this. If you talk to people who really spend their days going to work, taking care of their families, and really just getting by, they often don't stop and say, you know, am I happy? There, There is no time to question happiness. And I'm talking about in contemporary society. Yeah. They're just in the act of doing. And if you ask them at the end of the day, well, you know, w- were you basically happy today? The answer, by and large, will be yes, because they're not wrapped up in the pursuit of the joy. They're in wrapped up in the experience of living.
3: I think there's a really profound insight there, and it's one that, that people who've thought about happiness over the, over the ages have, have come to as well. Uh, and it's also in, in contemporary psychology. So the contemporary psychologist, Mike uh, Csikszentmihalyi, talks about... Flow experience—the kind of, you know, sense that we get when we're totally immersed in an activity that draws upon our our strengths and our predilections—and uh, we sort of forget who who we are or where we are uh, when we're, say, playing the piano or playing sports or uh, you know, playing with our children or just completely engrossed in activity. Uh, those kind of experiences give us tremendous happiness, and yet we're not thinking about the happiness uh, at the moment. The the great uh, English. Uh, um, uh, thinker and, and statesman John Stuart Mill in the 19th century, who really spent his whole life thinking about happiness, has this extraordinary line uh, in his autobiography when he s- sort of admits to himself that the moment that one asks oneself whether you're happy or not, you cease to be so. Uh, and I think, you know, that, again, it, it, sort of follows, it follows on what you're saying, um, but, I, but I think it also points out something potentially perverse about the world that we live in today, and that is that we ask ourselves whether we're happy all the time, right? We're constantly asking ourselves, And and contemporary advertising reminds us that, you know, did you just have your Coke and did you smile? You know, are you happy with this experience, with that product, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think to live in a world in which you're constantly asking yourself the question, am I happy or not, is in some ways to, uh, you know, to, to, to subvert it somewhat. Whereas if we can uh, pursue the activities uh, that give us uh, give us a strong sense of uh, fulfillment uh, and joy, we may be better off uh, than pursuing happiness directly. You know, I, the other thing I always love to point out historically is that, you know, we talk about the phrase the pursuit of happiness, and obviously for Americans it's a critical phrase. It's in the Declaration of Independence. The Founding Fathers thought a lot about it. Um, but we always focus on the word happiness. But the word pursuit uh, is interesting, too, in the 18th century. Uh, it meant, if you look up the word pursue in contemporary uh, dictionaries, it meant to follow in hostility, right? Uh, in, in in Scottish law in the 18th century, uh, a pursuer was a criminal prosecutor, right? Um, and so if you think of the pursuit of happiness in those terms, uh, following uh, happiness and hostility, uh, it, it gives it a kind of slightly different <laughs> different take, right?
2: Well, we are going to need to pursue a commercial break, unfortunately, and but when we come back, we are going to carry <laughs> on this conversation because I love talking about the history of happiness. I'm here today with Dr. Darren McMahon or Professor Darren McMahon. We'll be right back. Here come the tunes The History of Happiness We are... and Darren's personal take on happiness when we return. I wanted
1: to make a difference I wanted to fight. Know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on TogiNet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break.
0: Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Cayman has made her first ebook, "Got Happiness Now: Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life," available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com.
1: Wear the message on T-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice, and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen.
2: Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about the history of happiness. We spend a lot of time talking about happiness, positive psychology, positive emotion, and such. But today we're focusing alongside with Dr. Darren McMahon, who is the Ben Weider Professor of History at Florida State University. We're, we're focusing on the history of happiness where we've come, you know, talking about ancient philosophy, how it's relevant to contemporary society and living, and we're going to talk about the happiness revolution, so much so that we see in the media, TV, radio, it's in print ads everywhere, happiness, happiness, this, happiness, that. But there are some very uh, relevant ties in history to how we got here.
3: That's right, Lisa, um, i uh, you used the word revolution, I think it's important. I I, I talk in my book and elsewhere about what I call the revolution in human expectations that occurs uh, in western societies uh, in roughly the 18th century. Um, And as we talked a little bit before the break, you know, for for most people, uh, most times in history, happiness wasn't something that they expected or or maybe even believed was possible. And if they did, they thought of it as a really a rare thing, an an exceptional condition, right? So in in Greek and Roman philosophy, the the, the happy few, as Aristotle says, were those who lived supreme uh, lives, lives of virtue, of, 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 of human excellence that most human beings couldn't attain. And that same notion is, is really prevalent in every major religious tradition, right? In the, in the Jewish and Christian traditions, the, the, the happy are those who walk with God, who have God's blessing, who have God's grace. Uh, and, and, and most people, because of human sin, aren't going to attain, attain that perfection. Same in Buddhism. Many of your listeners are probably familiar with aspects of the Buddhist tradition. And I always remind people that, you know, the, the, the first of the four noble truths in Buddhism is that uh, all life is suffering, right? Most people suffer... Uh, in life uh, because they haven't uh, learned to live um, with human excellence. And so to achieve what the the Buddha achieved or what a bodhisattva achieved is really the exception and not the norm. So that's the kind of default uh, assumption, I think, in most human societies up till about the latter part of the 17th century. And in the 17th and 18th century, you get a, a radical new a proposition, uh, and that proposition is that human beings ought to be happy by virtue of
1: being human beings,
3: that we're put on this earth, and in fact, to achieve happiness, uh, that happiness isn't a special condition. It should be really what every man, woman, and child should should expect. Okay. Uh, we have that idea really enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, but Thomas Jefferson and the Founding Fathers weren't the only people thinking in these terms in the 18th century. In fact, it's a, a quite a, a wide-spread notion to assume that human, human beings ought to work for the greatest happiness of the greatest number. You've probably heard that phrase before, um, that, that happiness ought to be uh, a legitimate human expectation, uh, that happiness in some sense might even be uh, a human right, Okay. That's a really radical new, uh, new notion and it's, it's liberating progressive in so many ways because it says to human beings, that you know what? You don't have to suffer uh, simply by virtue of being human and you shouldn't have to apologize for experiencing pleasure in the world and you shouldn't have to uh, uh, feel guilt for uh, uh, making money and to improving uh, the quality of one's life. All of that is progressive and I think uh, very good. Um, what I think in the long term, though, it's tended to make us forget is that happiness in some, in some sense is a skill, right? It's something that we do have to work on. It's something that we do have to uh, strive for. And I think we have a, a sense today uh, in the world in which we live that happiness is easy um, and that we should just have it. And then, of course, we live our lives as human beings and realize that. That's not at all the case, right? Uh, And this leaves us with this curious sense that I call the unhappiness of not being happy. We we sort of expect happiness, uh, and yet we confront the world with all its pain and all its suffering and all its difficulties. And we're not happy, and we we add the unhappiness of not being happy uh, to all the other pains in the world. And that's a, that's a, a modern condition.
2: And it's it's one really of uh, I think of existential angst. You know, it's like, what am I doing here? What is my purpose? How can I find meaning to my day in this life? And you know, why is the pain continuing? Why is there continual suffering? And I, you know, in my own observation and journey on on this happiness trajectory, it really comes down to the, the expectations that we have and managing them. And then I do think that the the, um, the the concept of suffering as part of the human condition is true. It's the needless suffering yeah. that is not true. There's a difference.
3: Absol- absolutely. And, I, you know, as you uh, I'm, I'm sure appreciate and many of your listeners do, uh, that often those dark times can be the sort of jumping off points then for real growth and for real real exploration and, and pursuit of hopefully uh, something happier on the other side. But it takes that realization uh, in in some in many instances to kind of motivate us to to go forward.
2: And, and let's talk about the, the birth of psychology, or psychoanalysis, and how that contributed to this pursuit of happiness, or or conversely, fed into the uh, pursuit of ex- existential angst.
3: Yeah, you know, um, I'm sure that your your listeners are familiar with positive psychology, and we talk a lot about positive psychology today, a uh, psychology that focuses on human flourishing, human well-being, human happiness. but. As I'm sure you appreciate, psychology itself is a discipline. Uh, is founded in the 19th century uh, on uh, the medical model, a model of pathology. And what a what a doctors study! They study things that make people sick, right, uh, and how to cure them. And so, for the first psychologists and for the first psychiatrists, and Freud is a good example here, uh, the goal was was not to promote human flourishing and human well-being. It was to uh, remove suffering, right? So um, Freud has this famous line uh, in his studies uh, on hysteria that he co-wrote at the end of the 19th century with Joseph Breuer, that the goal of, of what he would later call psychoanalysis is to uh, to uh, remove sort of uh, extra suffering uh, to give us ordinary unhappiness. Right? <laughs> ordinary unhappiness because in Freud's conception, you know, you, you'll never achieve happiness. The human condition isn't such that, that happiness is possible. It's quite a dark view of the world. What we can do is is, is remove the kind of gratuitous suffering like you talked about. The, the suffering, it doesn't have to be there, right? But a certain baseline is going to be. There's just pain in the world and pain uh, in human existence and that's the way Uh, that's the way it is, and although that can sound like a very dark take uh, on on life, I think there's a a certain truth there Um, and yet, simply to study pathology, simply to study the, the sort of mental toxins without studying uh, what gives us human flourishing and, and, and positive human emotion and joy and so forth was, was to only study one side of the equation. And so we've seen another real transformation I would even say revolution in happiness studies in the last several decades um, exemplified by positive psychology and other movements that are focusing on the positive now. You know? I mean for so long uh, and I'm sure you, you remember this in your own lifetime and I can tell you this as a historian that you know when I first started studying the history of happiness people had always Sort of giggle when I told them you know what my subject was. You know, why don't you study something serious? They would say, oh. and it was the sense that like happiness was somehow not a um, you know somehow kind of trite. Uh, and this was true in, in all kinds of other fields too, in economics, for example, which is you know Thomas Carlyle famously called the dismal science. Um, when, when people first started proposing, uh, in, the, in the last several decades, that you know we ought to focus maybe not so much just on wealth attainment, but on um, promoting human flourishing, right, uh, and look for the correlations between increased wealth and increased happiness or, or whatnot, uh, they were great, greeted with a great deal of skepticism as well. And yet, uh, in field after field, in the last decade or so. Uh, we see people now focusing on on happiness, and, and this is a good thing. And in some ways, we're reconnecting uh, with one of the oldest uh, and, and most noble uh, uh, of human uh, is topics for human study, and that is what is what is what does it mean to live a good life? What does it mean to li- live uh, a life of, of human flourishing? That's a, a deep and, and noble and profound question that historians and philosophers and psychologists and all, all all men and women ought to be engaged with.
2: And let's talk about the good life. Let's talk about how it is redefined in this new post-recessionary new paradigm. Because prior to, let's say, 2007, 2008, many of us were really hung up on the fast lane. You know, how much can I make? What I, what I can produce? What are the toys that I have to show as a uh, a badge of my success? And for many of us, poof, it was gone. And then what? How does one redefine the good life or a happy life when the uh, capital becomes very different, the economics of it become very different? Well, you're, you're going to hate me, but as a historian, I'm going to have to take us back just a little bit from yeah, the no, no, 2007. then.
3: No. But I would, again, I'd go back to the 18th century, which is my sort of favorite century. But it, for, for the studies happiness, it's really this pivotal moment uh, in, in, in human expectations. And one of the things that happens in the 18th century is not only are people uh, presented with the idea that they ought to be happy in, in life. Um, and, and again, I stress that ought because there's a sense of obligation that immediately poses the question, well, if I'm not happy, have I done something wrong? am I you know uh, have I failed myself or uh, have others failed me? Um, h- how do we change the situation but not only does that expectation grow beginning in the eighteenth century but you also get the beginning of a redefinition of human happiness at the very beginning of the show you described happiness as an emotion uh, and we think of happiness exclusively as an emotion now right something that puts a smile on your face for um, Men and women, at least in the Western traditions, prior to the 18th century, that wasn't the case. In fact, when Aristotle, back in Greek times, classifies the human emotions, he doesn't include happiness, because happiness wasn't an emotion for him. It was uh, a way of describing a full, flourishing life that had all these other uh, components and constituents. And a full and flourishing uh, human life would necessarily have involved a good deal of pain, Aristotle and all ancients would have, would have assumed. In the 18th century, people start describing happiness as pleasure. So I use that phrase, the greatest happiness for the greatest number. It's a, a phrase attributed to the English thinker Jeremy Bentham, the father of utilitarianism, but it's widely widely shared view in the 18th century. And Bentham calls the greatest happiness for the greatest number, the greatest pleasure for the greatest number. Happiness is pleasure for him. Now, there's a polemical point here, and it's, again, it's one that says we don't have to suffer just because we're human beings. We don't have to, uh, to, to apologize constantly, uh, and worry about our sins. We should, we should take pleasure in our bodies, and we should take pleasure in the world, and we should take pleasure in human existence. A great message. And yet, again, I think something got forgotten, uh, beginning in the 18th century. And that is that this older idea, this older idea that, that human happiness might necess- not necessarily simply be, um, the things that put a smile on your face. Okay, so we flash forward now to 2007 uh, and beyond. I-, I think it was very easy uh, in the 90s when I started, uh, 1990s and uh, 2000s, uh, when I started working on this book, to think about happiness almost exclusively in a kind of material terms, right? And we have uh, advertising that that links those two things uh, all the time, right? Happiness is what, what puts a smile on your face. And yet... You know, when those things are taken away, or even when you have them, um, uh, one one can can see fairly quickly that uh, there's more to life than um, than, than simply uh, pleasurable sensations. And I think if there's a if a good side to the downturn, uh, and obviously there's a lot of pain, and we know. Uh, from uh, all kinds of studies that unemployment is one of the um, things that that causes the the most havoc in human lives and a great deal of unhappiness. Darren,
2: you're going to need to hang on to that thought. I'm so sorry. I'm going to need to cut you off, but we're going to go to a break. And When we come back, we are going to carry on our conversation about human suffering and happiness. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. Mm
1: We know life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on TogiNet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes.
0: likes to win, enter our weekly contests at Harvesting Happiness on Facebook where we give away our guests books, music, film, and products each week. In addition, we also do great Harvesting Happiness giveaways like free coaching sessions with Lisa Cypress Cayman, Lisa's Books, Happiness First Aid Kids, H Factor, Where Is Your Heart? Documentary film. Happiness is an inside job. Products, including the sterling silver infinity bracelet, that benefit Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, a nonprofit whose mission is to assist our returning military personnel and their loved ones challenged by combat trauma and other post-deployment reintegration issues. Join us at Harvesting Happiness on Facebook. Gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Cayman has made her first ebook. Got happiness now? Eight keys to unlocking a joyful life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com.
1: Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Cayman on TogiNet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on TogiNet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Cayman.
2: We are back with Darren M. McMahon, who is the Ben Weeder Professor of History at Florida State University, and we are talking about the history of happiness. Now you might be giggling out there, you might say happiness, there's a history to it. Well, in fact, there is. There's a history that runs long and deep and really is a commentary on the um development of, of humanity. You know, it used to be in, you know, centuries ago. Uh, the ancient philosophers would talk about really survival being the operative goal. You know, how do we get through the day and the short lifespan that we were afforded during that time? And you Uh, fast-forward to contemporary life where every message that we get in the media is about about happiness if you drive the right car you'll be happy if you drink the right drink you'll be happy if you wear the right shoes you'll be happy but really what we're talking about is something very very different certainly on this show and in the applied positive psychology work that I do so Darren and I are talking about the happiness revolution and the dark side of happiness so Darren, let's just jump right in. You can just, you, you have at it. <laughs>
3: Well, absolutely, and I, I was just going to follow up on a point that I made and I was making in a long winded way right before the break, and uh, we were talking about the, the consequences of, uh, of the recession and the, the economic downturn and I was trying to develop the point that although I uh, certainly wouldn 't wish on un- economic uncertainty uh, or dislocation on anyone, uh, the potential silver lining from these kind of periods is that it can remind us uh, that in fact happiness is correlated uh, not with um, the 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 car you drive and, and the house that you live in and so forth, uh, so much as these, these perennial um, uh, human attributes and qualities uh, that philosophers and, and religious sages and uh, the wisdom traditions have picked up on over the ages. So uh, cultivating a sense of forgiveness, cultivating a sense of hope, cultivating a sense of gratitude these are all qualities that positive psychologists themselves have picked up on uh, and I think often what they're doing here is uh, as, um, my friend John Haidt, who's also uh, a positive psychologist and a very good one, likes to put it, uh, they're finding uh, ancient, uh, modern truth and ancient wisdom. In other words, the positive psychologists are, are looking at, you know, what are the characteristics of happy people? Well, they have, uh, they have good uh, and rich social networks. They uh, express a gratitude for what they have. They have a sense of optimism, hope about, uh, about tomorrow. And those things don't cost money. Uh, they're often difficult to attain, and they are priceless if one has them. But sometimes in a, in a, in a time of uncertainty or a time of, uh, of suffering or, or, or sorrow, uh, we can sort of uh, see clarity uh, and, and see what really is more, more important uh, to us and most important. And that can be, as I say, a silver lining from uh, a dark cloud of, of otherwise suffering.
2: And I would add one more um, element to that, and that is a sense of uh, purpose. And, and we talk about this a lot on the show, that it is having that sense of place in the world. And it's not necessarily being uh, a mother or a father, although that contributes to it. But it's also an opportunity to use one's gifts in a uh, constructive way that contributes to the greater and collective good. I think that people Absolutely. report that a tremendous amount.
3: Absolutely, uh, absolutely. As you say, a sense of purpose, a sense of, and that links often so uh, closely to having a sense of optimism or hope, a sense of fulfillment in what one does. Um, yes, absolutely, absolutely central.
2: And what is um, so positive about positive psychology? Is that it really is focusing on what is right with life? It acknowledges that everybody has suffering, that everybody has dark times at their li- during their period of their lives, but at the same time, that if we look to cultivate the best parts of ourselves, we can um, not bypass the suffering, but certainly short circuit or cut off the needless suffering. You know, the loop, the negative self talk, and the loop that we can get ourselves into when we are going through a tough place.
3: Absolutely, yeah, I think that 's really a critical point because it seems to me and i when i when I talk to positive psychologists about this, I often make the point that positive psychologists, in some ways are returning to an older uh, pre-18th century notion of what a happy life entails. And what I mean by that is not that they're going back in in time uh, so much and resurrecting old ideas, but that they're validating things that the wisdom traditions have have long known, that there's more to a fulfilled life than simply pleasure. And as I say, since the 18th century, we've tended to equate happiness uh, simply with pleasure. Now, I'm not against pleasure. I I like pleasure, and I just... No, pleasure's good. ...all human beings (laughs) do. Um, And yet one has to recognize that there are lots of things in life that uh, are going to give us uh, pain and and not everything is going to give us pleasure. And and pleasure won't always give us happiness either. One of the, I think, really striking illustrations of this is uh, you mentioned children before. And there's a lot of work to suggest by positive psychologists, among others, that actually having children lowers your self-reported, you know, Daily pleasure, right? Yes, uh, yes. That uh, uh, you know that, that one self-reported uh, happiness in this this narrower sense actually declines when children come into the home, and that doesn't sort of go back to baseline until they leave. Now, I, I sometimes tell people this, and they look at me incredulous. But then I push a little farther, and and they sort of begin to agree, right? I mean, you woken up in the middle of the night by uh, a screaming child, and you you worry and so forth, and, and yet. <clears throat> If we measure happiness in a kind of broader sense, most people would say that, well, actually having children fulfills a great, you know, great deal of needs and contributes on, on all kinds of levels to their sense of fulfillment and purpose and so forth. And so uh, there's, a, there's a way in which we move uh, away from a, a definition of happiness that's simply focused on pleasure-pain calculus towards something broader and larger. Um, one comes at a, a kind of different, a different conclusion.
2: Well, I think that the the study that was done about uh, parents and children and the lower lowered happiness levels is because having kids is stressful. It's not just the getting up in the middle of the night. It is the carting them to their activities, being on a tight schedule. And the concern for not only your own well-being, but having, if you have one, two, three, four or more kids, getting them where they need to be. And then the happiness levels uh, do tend to rise after the children leave the home, leaving um, midlifers with a, a lot better uh, outlook on happiness in those later years of life than in early adulthood. Absolutely, and social networks and and, and friends and family, which we know
3: contribute so strongly to self-reported well-being.
2: And this is interesting. You know, you were talking about, you know, the the ancient philosophers talking about happiness as it related to the lifespan of that period of time, which may have been, you know, let's say mid-30s to early 40s at most. Now you have the average age probably pushing somewhere in the the, the mid-80s, if not close to 90, and there's this whole second life that is occurring in modern society where there's an opportunity for a tremendous amount of flourishing and thriving and continued growth that comes with this this second life that we yeah. are now afforded.
3: Yeah, and, and one nice, nice fact about this, as you probably have reported, uh, is that nature seems to be on our side in this respect. In other words, if you graph people's Self-reported happiness over the course of a lifetime—it um, actually starts to sort of tick back up, uh, beginning in the, the the late 30s or the 40s, uh, and increases slightly on upward. In other words, the the life curve of one's self-reported happiness looks a little bit like a smiley face until the very very end of life, when, for obvious reasons, it, it declines precipitously. But until then, people are actually happier, and you've probably noticed this in your own life. I know that in the last years of my father's life, he was happier than he'd ever been. You know, uh, and my children remember him as a kind of jolly grandfather you know um, now that doesn't happen to everyone uh, but I think we get a little bump from nature to you know compensate us for our receding hairlines and uh, growing <laughs> waistlines and, and that's a good thing um, but you know obviously we can't depend solely on uh, on nature and I think one of the things that, that human beings need to be thinking about as, as our lifespan increases uh, increases is preparing uh, for uh, happiness down the road I mean you just mentioned raising children how this can be Difficult and, and complicated, and yet, if one does it uh, and does it, uh, no one does it well, but good enough, right? Um, that this can then set you up for a lot of joy down the road. And I think that, you know, uh, cultivating activities, cultivating friendships, cultivating uh, hobbies and passions, um, uh, cultivating purpose, as you said, uh, at, at, at midlife. So that one then can sort of reap the the interest from those investments later in life is tremendously important. And, you know, we we spend so much time in the modern world, and particularly in the United States, thinking about all kinds of things from our golf swings to, uh, you know, uh, our our favorite sports teams. and, you know, I often say if we took just a little bit of the energy and time that we put into some of those activities uh, into uh, activities that can contribute to human flourishing, well-being, and human happiness, thinking of happiness as a skill that needs to be cultivated, we'd be better off.
2: Um, well, the, the thinking about happiness and the doing of happiness yeah. are two very different things. You know, many people sit around and just say, you know, I just want to be happy. But, you know, being happy... It, truly, being happy really is a, a a process, and as we said earlier, it's the byproduct of of a very different set of circumstances. But they can be trained for. In other words, if we say we want to be a happier individual, it's it's not unlike, let's say, losing weight or gaining muscle mass. There there is a a process, you know, a tried and true process. Although everybody's path may be a little bit different, certainly we can. Um, Act as if we can put these uh, strategies in motion that help uh, create a, a greater sense of well-being and joy. Gratitude being one that is sort of the all-time fallback default position to Definitely. just be grateful. And again,
3: this is another way in which I think you know re- reconnecting with some of the wisdom of the ancient wisdom traditions is important because in so many cultures. Happiness or human flourishing was thought of as a process, as a, uh, a set of skills uh, that one developed over the course of a lifetime, and not as something that just fell out of the sky or happened to us, right? And I think there's a danger in the world that we live in that we think happiness is easy, uh, and that really it's just a question of getting our head around it in the right way, uh, thinking about life in a different way. And as you, I think, so rightly point out, happiness is an activity. In fact, this is how Aristotle described happiness. It's an activity lived according to virtue. And by virtue, he just simply meant living in the the optimal way given the circumstances. There are lots of different paths to the optimal way. Uh, But in order to walk the path, you have to
2: walk. That's an activity. (laughs) Exactly. And it is a practice. It's a moving meditation uh, that's how I've come to really view this as you know, as the years have gone on. That it is um, a, a mindfulness practice, and by mindfulness, and we're, we're going to need to go to a break, and I'm going to make this short, and then we'll jump back in and we return. It's really being present and paying attention, and this is something where many of us slip. And so I'll leave you with this question before to go to, we go to break. How has paying attention to your life contributed to you being happier, or how is the inattentiveness? to to life caused you to be um, less happy. You're listening to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. My guest today is Darren McMahon. He is a history professor at Florida State University, the author of Happiness, A History. And we will be right back. Here come the tunes. Maybe. Here they come. (laughs) Ta-da! I I finished short... We can whistle. I wanted to
1: make a difference. I wanted to fight. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Do you like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa Cypress-Kamen will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for more details.
0: part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the medical center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day.
1: Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen.
2: Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about the history of happiness. Not the history of the yellow smiley face, but the history of human happiness. And this emotion that we so prize, covet, desire, and in many cases drive our lives around in search of. And with me today is Darren M. McMahon. He is the Ben Weider Professor of History at Florida State University. He is an author and he's written several books, but the one we're talking about right now is Happiness A History, which has been translated into 12 languages and awarded best books of the year by the New York Times, Washington Post, Library Journal, and Slate Magazine. So, Darren, let's 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 kind of wrap our head around this concept of mindfulness and presence and paying attention as a pathway to experiencing greater, if not happiness, certainly contentment in the present moment. Right, and you
3: know, again, I. I when I think about mindfulness in the Buddhist sense of, of, of being focused and present in the moment, uh, you know, one of the things that anyone who's ever tried to do even just a little bit of meditation will, will know is that it's very difficult to be mindful. Uh, it's a craft that one has to perfect. It's a skill that one has to work on. And Of course, this is what uh, anyone who has any familiarity with Buddhism will tell you, that, you know, that in order to achieve uh, mindfulness and the happiness that, that follows from it, one has to really work at it. And I think, that, again, this is an insight that, that many of the wisdom traditions have uh, to, to share with us, that happiness isn't just that yellow smiley face uh, that we can uh, turn on or turn off easily. It's something that has to be worked on. Uh, and being mindful and being present, uh, uh, learning to cultivate loving kindness, learning to cultivate gratitude for the things that we have, learning to cultivate a sense of purpose and direction and hope uh, and optimism are all skills. Um, we can't control what happens to us, and in this respect, the ancients were right. Uh, but we can control uh, how uh, we react to what happens to us. That is in our our, our power, uh, and and in order to, to to develop the skills to do that, we need to to work on. Them.
2: And in embracing what is, and and finding creative ways of dealing. Uh, with what is happening around us is, I believe, one of the tools to finding happiness, happiness equaling that contentment or place of balance, not the yellow smiley face. You know, that it is our relationship to these issues as they arise is the very issue itself. So as we learn these skills that we're talking about, um, and they become part of our daily life and the daily practice, when the spikes and the valleys occur, we are equipped to handle them
3: yeah and you know it when you put it like that it's so simple <laughs> and yeah, at some it's, yes. level it is so simple and of course it's very difficult in practice but i had a really powerful sort of illustration of just this the other day um i was with my son in the car and he's 5 almost 6 Uh, he had an ice cream cone uh, and the window was open uh, and it sort of blew and his ice cream went out the window. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, of course, that's all I could do to not smile myself. But, you know, he, of course, started crying. Um, And I said, well, you know, look, you've got a choice here. You know, you can spend the rest of the car ride crying about what's already happened or you can just you know, move on and uh, we can have a pleasurable uh, car ride for the rest of the time. Now of course this is a self-interested strategy on my part because I didn't want him whining and crying anymore but it was funny to watch his face. He really reacted to that and realized oh my gosh yeah I have a choice right now on how I deal with this and if I let that experience haunt me for the rest of the car ride, it's going to. Uh, or if I don't let that happen, I can have a different experience. And he, he got it, you know. Uh, and so that's that simple lesson that uh, a five-year-old can grasp, uh, and yet that we forget so many times uh, through life. And we have a choice on how we react to the experiences.
2: The aha moment. You know, and I do tell this to my own kids. I have, my kids are now teenagers. I have one that's nearly 14 and the other is nearly 16. And, you know, there's a fair amount of whining that goes on because that's part of the territory. <laughs> And you know, you're making me this, you're making me that. I'm like, I'm not making you anything. You're choosing. You know, this is your reaction. You are choosing this and you can you can take another path here at any time. And this is a huge life lesson not just for teenagers or five-year-olds, but you know, a 100-year-old can can yes. can learn this. And yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. go ahead.
3: No, I was, and I was just going to say that again, you know, thinking historically about this, it's it's one of the ways in which the contemporary world particularly the very privileged world in, in, in the West that we live in uh, by and large in the early 21st century can, can deceive us, it can be deceptive. In other words we're used to things basically going right, right? Uh, whereas earlier cultures were much more um, conditioned by suffering and adversity and things going wrong, that they were sort of used to it. That gave them a kind of thicker skin. And I think sometimes, you know, we're, you know we get angry if uh, we ordered a decaf latte and you know uh, it has uh, uh, foam instead of whipped cream or what have you. I mean, we let little things bother us uh, in the modern world in part because we're used to things basically going our way. Uh, but this makes us vulnerable then to. Uh, so, it's a petty dissatisfaction, and that's something that we ought to be able to control. You
2: know, the word vulnerability, I mean, this is another um, very modern buzzword that the ability to be vulnerable, to see oneself in this mass equation of life, is being vulnerable requires us to be authentic, and the authenticity part of it is can be tricky for many people because we we tend to wear our masks and put on airs you know when we're really just fighting the good fight to get through get through the day yeah well gosh
3: it's so complicated isn't it i mean so for example one one sometimes people will say that you know when you get angry in a certain situation that's just being authentic it's how i really feel and so therefore why shouldn't you just vent your anger Uh, And of course, in some cases, that's entirely justified, but yet we also know that sort of venting anger uh, in a repeated way uh, actually builds anger, right? You know, there's an old idea in the 70s that you remember that when people were taught to sort of punch bags when they got really mad, you'd go and punch bags and you'd get your anger out. It turns out it doesn't work that way. Uh, Actually, punching bags probably makes you angrier (laughs) if you do it repeatedly in that way. Uh, And so um, that's a case in which, you know, being authentic um, isn't always necessarily the best strategy, right? And expressing what, what's in you at the moment, uh, whereas I think you know, somebody uh, coming at this from a mindfulness perspective might say, hey, hold on, let's, let's work to try to contain those negative emotions uh, and channel them into something else, right? which is also authentic and it takes work, um, but might be more productive in the end.
2: Well, usually, not usually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a leap here and say that beneath the anger, if you talk to anybody who is angry, beneath that anger, the emotions are sadness, grief, and disappointment. Right. And though the sadness, grief, and disappointment places you in a much more vulnerable position than being angry. You are right. in a, an offensive position when you're vulnerable. You're in a defensive position when you're angry and punching the bag or punching someone's lights out.
3: Right. And people are much more inclined, of course, to be kind to you uh, in, in, in the, the former situation than the latter, often.
2: Often, and, it, and it, but it's it's hard when we uh, armor ourselves up to uh, go out and slay dragons in the world. When in fact, the the softer side is really what serves us not only to be uh, happier in the world, but also more connected because it's those. Right very tender primal emotions that unify us, not keep us separated. So that, it's, a, uh, it's a very interesting paradox, and, and one that I, I explore a lot because I work a lot with uh, people who have trauma. I work a lot with right. our veterans. And, you know, anger is certainly an issue for many of them as they're dealing with their post-traumatic stress situation. <clears throat> Excuse me. And beneath all of it I find time and time again is that overwhelming sadness and grief and, and moral injury. That sure. it's something very different. Sure. You know? And to uh to, to reclaim the happy spot or to find some balance in the middle to go on with life requires the serious reframing and responsibility that we've also talked about earlier in the show.
3: Yeah. I like that reframing is such a powerful way of thinking about one doesn't revisit the source of anguish constantly, uh, but looks at at other things in the world.
2: Um, You know, I would challenge to you, it's it's, um, the uses of it. You know, how do we use the adversity in service to the transcendence?
0: Mm.
3: Right. And again, this comes back to this notion that we've hit on a number of times and that I think so many people who thought or acted upon happiness throughout human history uh, reaffirm and that is that, that, you know, that ha- we, we tend to think of happiness and, uh, and suffering as total opposites uh, and yet often a, a flourishing life uh, will account for uh, the inevitable suffering and the inevitable pain and make space for it uh, and use it productively uh, in a way that an unhappy life won't. We all experience pain. We all experience suffering. Uh, The flourishing life is one that can sort of use that suffering transformatively uh, to to create uh, greater meaning, greater purpose, greater connectivity to others, uh, and and so forth.
2: And and there's where the choice lies, and there's where the power lies. And I think that this is um, a very interesting concept for people to explore. It's foreign to many people because they're used to, in a certain sense, surrendering their power to the outside force or to the medical profession. Um, you know, following that model, that we can uh, seek out traditional therapy or seek out pills and medication mm. to treat something that is really a very visceral, primal um, emotion and reaction to uh, extraordinary circumstances. Absolutely. Um, let's talk a bit about genius because I, I am personally interested in genius, and um, this is the next book that will be coming out in the fall. What identifies genius?
3: Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm I'm a historian, so the way I come at these questions is not by starting with a kind of you know universal definition that implies in all places and times, but I look at the way that people have talked about genius or geniuses uh, over the course of human history, and it turns out that really people only start talking seriously about geniuses as individuals in the 18th century. And so one of the questions I ask as a historian is, why is that the case? Um, And the the, the short answer in less than 30 seconds uh, is that um, this is a time when people are discounting the belief in uh, prophets and angels and other higher human beings. Uh, And geniuses, people like Newton and later Napoleon, Einstein, who have privileged access to the workings of the world, who have some sort of deep uh, uh, and powerful universal knowledge – serve in some ways the role that saints and prophets and other uh, divinely elect, uh, uh, elected beings had served in, in, in previous times. So that's one of the ways that I'm coming at the question.
2: Oh, I like this. I like this, and I'm interested in the corollary between genius and happiness, and we're going to save that for another show when the book comes out, because I think that you probably will make some very interesting observations. We have run out of time. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. And here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought sold or traded happiness will never invite you to the party happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion purpose place and meaning thanks for joining us on harvesting happiness talk radio this is lisa cypress cayman and darren m mcmahon wishing you kind thoughts kinder words and the kindest of actions until next time remember happiness is an inside job Happiness is your inside job. And I want to spell Darren's full name so you can check him out at Florida State University. It's D-A-R-R-I-N-M-M-C-M-A-H-O-N. He is the Ben Weider Professor Happiness Resident, Happiness Historian, I think, will be your new name. Have a great day, everyone. We'll see you soon.
1: Got no time
2: anyway. Somehow.
1: Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kane. Join us every Wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 Central Time here on TogiNet Radio. Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free downloadable podcasts.